It's very good to be here this evening. Uh, I'd like to say the, I appreciate the prayers on my behalf, and I appreciate Mitch's prayer that uh, we would all keep in mind that this world is not our home and that we have something better waiting for us. And that something better is part of what I'd like to visit about tonight. Ephesians 6 and 11 says, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. The wiles of the devil. You know, how often do we read that verse or hear that taught and kind of let it just pass in one ear and out the other? And really not give it the recognition that it deserves. You know, wiles are tricks, manipulations, and they're designed to deceive us. You know, although the devil has many, many tools in his toolbox that he uses against Christians, I believe distraction is one of his best, most efficient, most effective tools to use against Christians. It's just really simple. And sometimes the simplest things are the most effective. You know, we all know what distraction means. It's just something that prevents us to, from staying focused. You know, I believe we all need to be careful that we don't become too busy, too distracted. And we get drawn away from our purpose here on this earth, from what's important, from that home in heaven, for that future, for what we're really striving for, that the things that are going on here in this earth, here in this time, in our lives, yes, they're important. And yes, they affect each and every one of us. But at the end of the day, they're really not what's most important. You know, it's really easy to be consumed by life. And if we don't make God a priority every day with purpose in everything that we do, He'll get lost. You know, our calendars can control our lives. If you look at the announcements or talk to anybody, and you just think about the next few weeks of our lives, we have graduation, we have graduation parties, we have weddings, we have summer meetings, we have summer vacations, we all have to work, we all have things for vacation schedules. We all have many, many things to do. And if we're not careful, all these things are good, and there's nothing wrong with them. But we can be consumed by them. And we can be so consumed in life that we forget to make time for God. Don't let your life become a series of boxes that we're just checking off as we're running from one event to the next. Make it your purpose to make time for God in your life. To have a real relationship with Him. Not one that you check off that I came to church. Not one that you check off that I thought about God today. But a real relationship. One that's meaningful. You know, we don't expect to just check off time with our spouses and it to be okay. We have to put in the work and the time and the effort. And God is the same way. We need to put in the work and the time and the effort. 
The Old Testament is full of examples of God's people being distracted. They were distracted by financial prosperity. They were distracted by politics. They were distracted by complacency. All of those distractions. And all of these things are not sinful in of themselves. But without a proper perspective, without putting God first, without making time for that relationship, those distractions led them away from God. Which brings us to our lesson tonight. So tonight I want to share with you my study from the book of Habakkuk. I first wanted to study this book because I realized you really never hear anybody use any verses out of this book. You don't really hear anybody talk about it. At least until Ram did a couple of weeks ago from the pulpit here. I'm thoroughly convinced that the reason why you don't hear anybody preach out of this or quote verses from it is because nobody wants to pronounce Habakkuk from the pulpit. I don't blame them. It's very rightfully so. But I believe the book is a good book. All the books in the Bible are in there for a reason, and we shouldn't skip over them because we're intimidated by them. There's nothing in there to be intimidated by. I believe the message is very timely and important for us, and I think we can all gain from the study of it. The book begins with the prophet worried, and he's worried about a social injustice. And I'm going to preface it by saying he was distracted. He was distracted by what he thought was important. Not what God thought was important, but what he thought was important. And I think we can learn a lesson from it. So, the book of Habakkuk is the eighth book of the twelve minor prophets of the Bible. It was probably composed in the late 7th century B.C., not bef long before the Babylonians seized uh, the lower kingdom and captured Jerusalem in 586 B.C. Here are the twelve minor prophets, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Naomi, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. And you see the, the times that they were written. They are all written in about a three, 300, 400 year period. All before the, the fall of the northern kingdom, and then the fall of the southern kingdom, and then as they returned from exile. Habakkuk identifies himself as a prophet in the opening verses. I had a hard time finding any biographical information about the prophet. Evidently, researchers didn't want to do any study on him either. It seems like less is known about him than any other writer in the Bible. But we do know he was a prophet. He tells us that in his writings. He lived during the reign of Jehoiakim which was from 609 to 598 B.C. So, as I mentioned before, the Babylonians, they marched against Jerusalem in 958 B.C. Jehoiakim died while the Babylonians were on their way there. As they were headed that way, they were conquering people. They just conquered everything there was around them on their way. 
They were like locusts. As they moved into an area, they consumed everything. They consumed everyone. No one could stand against them. So as they were heading that way, the king dies, and his 18-year-old son, Jerohoachin, assumed the throne. So as soon as the Babylonians got there, it was a short time after uh, the son had taken the throne, he surrendered to them. So uh, as far as history of Jerohoachin and Jerohoachin, they were both very bad leaders. They were very evil. They did evil in the sight of the Lord. They did not try to follow God's will. They sought after their own pleasures. And uh, they lost the kingdom. And, and the people that they were over sought after their own pleasures. And, they, and it was not a very godly nation at that time. There was some godly people there. But as a whole, the whole nation, from their rule down, was very ungodly. So uh, that's kind of what's going on in the time period here. Here's a summary of the, the whole book of Habakkuk. The major theme is, is that the world's very imperfect. It's very unjust. And man left up to itself, the world left up to itself without God, without a relationship with God, without trying to grow closer to God, is a very cruel place and is full of evil. We see all throughout history, modern history all the way back, that when man doesn't have a relationship with God, he turns very mean, very cruel, very evil. There's no justice in this world. God, however, in contrast to man, is, very, is perfect and just. And he will judge his creation. And he, and he states that here in this book. That he's the creator and that he will be the judge. There are three chapters in the book. The first two are a dialogue between God and the prophet. And then the third chapter is a prayer to God. So the prophet writes out asking God a question, and God answers his question. And then he asks another question, and God answers that. And then after that conversation, he feels the need to say a prayer to God. The message that the just shall live by his faith, that phrase should sound familiar to you. We see that phraseology used over and over about three times in the New Testament. It's used in Romans, Galatians, and Hebrews. And it comes from the second chapter here in the first, fourth verse. As I said, the book begins with the conversation with the prophet, with God. God replies that he's not ignorant. He knows what's going on. He knows about the corruption. And he knows about the evil. And he tells the prophet that there's a judgment coming. You know, right before we look at that, I'd like for you to think about that in your own life. You know, how often does mankind do things because they think no one is paying attention? How often do you do things in your life because you think nobody's paying attention? 
you think nobody sees and you can get away with it. Let's keep in mind that as, as God states here, he knows what's going on. And there's a judgment coming. And nobody gets away with, they, with what they think they do in secret or in public. So that was a summary. So I'm going to run through a quick outline. So as I said before, it begins with why. So in chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, he asks, why is there so much suffering? Why is there so much injustice? So if you'd like to follow along, beginning in verse 2, it says, O Lord, how long shall I cry, and thou wilt not hear? Even cry unto thee of violence, and thou wilt not save. Why dost thou show me iniquity, and cause me to behold grievance? For spoiling and violence are before me, and, they, <coughs> and there are that rise up strife and contention. Therefore the law is slacked, and judgment doth never go forth. For the wicked doth compass about the righteous. Therefore wrong judgment proceedeth. Habakkuk asks God, asks these questions to God. He sees all this injustice among his people. It's everywhere. Corruption is rampant everywhere. And he asks God, why do you not punish this corruption? Why do you not punish this evil? It's gone on so long that it's everywhere. Nobody even hides it anymore. It's awful. Wrong is being called right. Right is being called wrong. There is just no sense of it. And he's crying out to God, why? How could you allow this to happen? Why is this happening? So God's reply surprises him. It's not what he was expecting. God's reply to him is, is it's about to get worse. You think it's bad now? Hold on. He tells him that the Babylonians are coming. So verses 5 and 6. Behold ye among the heathen, and regard, and wonder marvelously. For I will work a work in your days which ye will not believe, though it be told to you. For lo, I rise up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, which shall march through the breadth of the land to possess the dwelling places that are not theirs. So God tells him, I'm going to send the Chaldeans, or as we know they're called the Babylonians, to punish his people. God's people had become arrogant, and they were trusting in themselves, and they had no need of God, and God was willing to let their enemies run them over. He would protected them, and his protection was going to come to an end. And that's, that's what he's telling Habakkuk. Is I'm no longer going to protect you from, from your neighbors. So, in verses 12 and 13, he speaks to God again. And he says, Art thou not from everlasting, O Lord my God, mine only one? Shall we not die? O Lord, thou hast ordained them for judgment. And, O mighty God, thou hast established them for correction. Thou art of purer eyes than to behold evil, and canst not look on iniquity. Wherefore lookest thou upon them that deal treacherously, and holdest thy tongue when the wicked devoureth the man that is more righteous than he? 
Do you notice that phrase there at the end? The man that is more righteous than he? You know, this, this verse really stands out to me. You know, he asked him, why would you use these sinners, sinners to punish your people? You know, I think a better way of saying that is, is why, are you, why are you using these sinners to punish your chosen sinners? You know, just a few minutes ago, he was talking about the corruption that was among God's people. And God tells him, you're going to be, I'm going to send in your neighbors here and they're going to just wipe you all out. And he can't understand why God would turn against his own people. The prophet did not have an eternal perspective. He was distracted by all the evil going on around him. We must be careful not to be distracted by all the evil going on around us and lose our focus on God and lose our focus on that home in heaven. So we see he asks a second question, verses 14 through 17. And make us men as the fishes of the sea and creeping things that have no ruler over them. They tuck up all them with an angle. They catch them in their net, and they gather them to their drag. Therefore, they rejoice and are glad. Therefore, they sacrifice under their net, and they burn incense under their drag, because by them their portion is fat, and their meat is plenteous. Here that I've highlighted, it's the they they're talking about is the Babylonians. The Babylonians were idol worshipers. You know, as I said before, the prophet's focus went from the sin of God's people to the sin of his neighbors. You see how quick he was, he was to point to them? You know, a minute ago he was pointing at his own people. He was pointing at his neighbors there in the southern kingdom. Now he's pointing at those people over there. His focus is on everybody but himself. You know, we need to keep our focus on our relationship with God. You know, I don't know if there's any other way to say it, but basically he's pleading for some other different kind of punishment. A minute ago, he was wanting to call down wrath on his own people, and God said, that judgment's coming. And now that he knows it's coming, he's like, whoa, we need to do something different. This is not going to work. You know, how often are our thoughts and our expectations and our reality, if we don't look to the Bible, if we don't look to God for that guidance, they're not going to be the same. That's the reason why the world without God has no standards. If you don't look to God for the standard, it's just whatever man comes up with. So chapter 2. We see in the beginning of chapter 2, the prophet waits God's response. He says, I will stand upon my watch and set me upon the tower, and I will watch to see what he will say unto me, and what I shall answer when I am reproved. So the prophet's waiting, waiting for God's answer, and he's waiting to be reproved. And God answers him in verse 2, And the Lord answered me and said, Write the vision and make it plain upon tables, that he may run that readeth it. 
For the vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end it shall speak and not lie. Though it tarry, wait for it, because it will surely come, it will not tarry. Behold, his soul which is lifted up is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. God warns his people if they will listen to him. If they read this message and believe it, God tells him they'll be saved. He made them a way of escape. So verses 5 through 20. He goes to talking about the Babylonians. God's telling him that the Babylonians are unjust. That he's aware that they're unjust, that they're an evil nation. And he tells Habakkuk that they're going to be punished as well. So verses 8 and 9. Because thou hast spoiled many nations, all the remnant of the people shall spoil thee. Because of men's blood and for the violence of the land and of the city and all them that dwell therein, woe to him who gets an evil gain for his house. So he tells him that they're not, the Babylonians are not going to be left out. And God tells him that they're going to be judged as well. You know, their judgment comes in the, in the way that it says here that they've conquered all these nations. And in doing so, they've just racked up a lot of land and a lot of people under their control. And eventually it's going to become more than they can bear. And those people that they've overcome are going to eventually outnumber them and they're going to take them over. And they're going to be, you know, they're going to be slaves to somebody themselves. All of their evil, all of their worshiping idols, all of their will be punished. Verses 18 and 19. What profit the graven image that the maker thereof have graven it, the molten image and the teacher of lies, that the maker of his work trusteth therein to make dumb idols. Woe unto him that saith to the wood, Awake, to the dumb stone, Arise, it shall teach. Behold, it is, an, it is laid over with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in the midst of it. I think this is kind of funny the way he says it here. He says they're worshiping something they made themselves with their own hands. That's how silly mankind becomes. And, and we're no different today than the Babylonians were the people before them. We make our own idols with our own hands, and then we decide to spend our time, our effort, to be distracted by it, to put our cares and concerns in its hands, in the hands of the maker that made it. You know, and it's just a dumb idol. There is only one true God, the creator of all. And he will have the last word. So, chapter 3, as I said before, is a prayer that Habakkuk prays to the Lord. And it begins in verse 2, or in verse 1 and 2, with, O Lord, I have heard thy speech and was afraid. O Lord, revive thy work in the midst of the years, and in the midst of the years make known. In wrath, remember mercy. 
in wrath, remember mercy. You know, he was asking for judgment in chapter 1. And now he begins his prayer with remember mercy. When judgment comes, it's not going to be what the world thinks. Nobody's going to be standing over there pointing, yes, I'm ready for justice. Get them some justice and them some justice and I'll take mine too. It's not going to be that way. When judgment comes, no one's going to want justice anymore. We're all going to want mercy. And when we have that eternal perspective we should have, we're going to want mercy now. Verses 18 and 19. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength, and he will make my feet like hinds' feet, and he will make me to walk upon mine high places. He realizes that he needs God. He needs his strength. He needs his mercy. He needs his salvation. We need God. We need his strength. And we need his salvation. And we need to remember that there is joy in salvation. He says, I will rejoice in the Lord. Why does he want to rejoice in the Lord? Because he finds mercy there. He finds salvation there. So, let's look at some lessons I think we can take away from the study of this book. First of all, God is in control. Isaiah 55 and verse 8 reads, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. God chose to use the Babylonian Empire for his own divine purpose. Habakkuk could not understand that. God's ways are not our ways. Even when things seem chaotic around us, God is still in control. I can't imagine a more chaotic time than when the prophet was writing this and God was still in control. And no matter how chaotic you think things are today, God is still in control. God spoke this world into existence and He is still in control. Second of all, the world has always had suffering because of sin. Habakkuk 1 and verse 3 reads, Why dost thou show me iniquity and cause me to behold grievance? For spoiling and violence are before me, and they are that rise up strife and contention. This world has always been an ugly place for God's children since, since they were kicked out of the garden. The prophet lived in a day of uncertainty, much like we do. And he is concerned about what he sees around him. I'm concerned about what I see around me. For my kids, for their future. But the best thing we can do is teach them and assure them that this world is not our home. That we have better things waiting for us. Romans 12 and verse 1 reads, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. 
And be not conformed to this world, but be you transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove that it, what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. We have a better reward waiting for us in heaven. Paul calls it our reasonable service. He talks about training our minds, about focusing on the blessings. And not being brought down by the troubles, by the strife, because we live in an imperfect place. God is not asking us to do something that's impossible. He asks us to be disciples. And if we want perfection, if we want to live in a perfect world, then we need to strive to make it to heaven. The Christian's duty is to be a faithful disciple. Disciple just means a follower. To be a disciple means to be dis disciplined. To be a disciplined follower. Ecclesiastes 12 and verse 13 reads, Let us hear the whole conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep His commands, for this is the whole duty of man. Solomon sums up his thoughts with a very simple statement. It's just real simple. It's straightforward. Fear God and keep His commands. Live a life with purpose. Making, make serving God a priority in your life. Next thing I think we can learn from this study is to trust in God. Habakkuk 2 and verse 4 reads, Behold His soul which is lifted up, <clears throat> which is lifted up is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. Remember how God warned his people? He told the prophet to write it down plainly. He gave them a way of escape. That same God loves you as much as he loved his people there. And he wants you to be saved. And he has made a way of escape for you as well. But you have to be willing to look for it. You have to be willing to search it out. And you have to be willing to follow it once you find it. Philippians 4 and 7 reads, And the peace of God which passes all understanding shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Paul talks about peace here. And the unbeliever cannot understand this. It's a kind of peace that enables us to be joyful even in the most difficult times. Romans 1 and 16 reads, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, The just shall live by faith. God sent his son to die for the sins of the world. God used his prophets to tell the people that Jesus was coming. The faithful disciple will seek out God's will, and he'll apply it when he finds it. Our faith will save us. Our willingness to submit to God will save us. We can find that peace. We can find that salvation if we're willing to look for it. 
Peace and joy do not come from our circumstances. It comes from God. Circumstances do not dictate whether we're joyful. If that's how we dictate whether or not we're joyful or not, our perspective is wrong. That's how we can go visit families that have lost loved ones. And they have peace. And they can have joy. They know that that loved one has moved on to a better place. They know they'll see that loved one. You know, the world will look at that situation and think that's the darkest time they could ever see. And we find Christians that have peace, that can find joy. It's tough. They miss them. But they can look at that in an eternal perspective and see they can find peace. Romans 15 and verse 13 reads, Now the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, that you may abound in hope through the power of the Holy Ghost. Romans 12 and 12 reads, Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Philippians 4 and 4, Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. James 1 and 2, Count it all joy, my brethren, when you meet trials of various kinds. Galatians 5 and 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. We too can rejoice no matter the circumstances if we have an eternal perspective. Tribulation, trials here on this earth, sickness, heartache, all of that will come and go. If we keep our focus, if we keep our perspective, if we keep our eye and our relationship with God, we can have peace. Habakkuk 3 and verse 18 reads, Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength, and he will make my feet like hind's feet, and he will make me to walk upon my high places. We are complete because of Jesus' sacrifice. Our salvation can be sure and true. We can trust in it. So as we mentioned before, this world is a fallen place. Only when we get to heaven will things be perfect. So I encourage you, make it your passion, make it your purpose, make it your effort to get to heaven. Let's remember that communication with God is crucial. We have the blessing of the scriptures where we have knowledge. We can study those out. We can find application for that in our lives. We have prayer. Let's use those tools. God warns his people just as he warned the prophet and told him to write it down. We have the scriptures that warn us, that give us direction. Our God loves us and gave us direction. He wants you to be saved. He left you the map. And certainly, we can find peace through Jesus. When we cannot rejoice in our circumstances, when things are dark and bad around us, as I said before, we can rejoice in our salvation. We can rejoice in the hope that we have. And we can rejoice and find peace in God's blessings that he's blessed us with in our lives. 
There will always be challenges while we live here on this earth. So I'd encourage you in closing here, don't simply go through life and its challenges. Anybody can sit on the bus and just ride, and just ride through a town and ride through a situation. But don't just go through things. Grow. Grow through life and its challenges. And the only way you're going to do that is if you study, if you build up your knowledge, and if you strengthen your faith. And if we do that, if we grow as a Christian through those situations, we'll be stronger when the next one comes. Grow as a Christian, apply what you've learned, and be better in the future. I believe this is all I have prepared this evening. We're going to offer the invitation at this time. If there's one here that would be subject to the invitation call, we're going to offer that. If you'd come forward and we'll assist you as we can as we stand and sing.